Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 14 from The Tire Tracks by James W. Knox. True stories of childhood, adventure, exploration, and friendship. Chapter 14, Midnight Train to Eternity. In the part of the world where James and Kyle grew up, snows never fell, frost was rarely seen, and cold days were few in number. The boys marked the seasons of the year in simple terms. May was called May because that was the time it may get really hot. Once the temperatures rose, the heat would stay until November, which got its name because there would be no more really hot days. Winter came in January or February and only lasted for a week or two, but they were miserable times when you had to wear a coat and sometimes even a hat none of which kept you warm. The summer was filled with the previously discussed meltdown days. Meltdown was a word the boys had heard somewhere in school, probably during one of those safety drills where a loud buzzer went off and everyone got under their desk and put their hands over their heads so whatever the Russians had launched at the U.S. rocket launching base just 40 miles away would not harm you. While the purpose of these drills actually seemed to be scarring the daylights out of small children so that they would live in fear the rest of their days on Earth, the boys loved them because atom bomb fallout drills, fire drills, tornado drills, and all the other look at all the ways your life could end tragically and suddenly drills meant no schoolwork, at least for a few minutes. On a meltdown day, Kyle and James played football or rode their bikes or walked in the woods and watched the last dry patch of their t-shirt turn dark. When they were completely wet, one of them would cry, Meltdown! And with groans and moans, they would fall to the ground and pretend to die, like the people they saw once each year in the movies shown at school about what would happen to little boys and schoolgirls if someone ever dropped an atomic bomb on them and they were not able to get under their desk fast enough. All these hot days were perfect for adventures in the water and there were all kinds of great things in and around the water. Some of them were real. Some of them might have been real, but the boys never actually saw them. Water bugs looked like little black balls with tiny stick legs, and they bit hard. Big brown horseflies, which look nothing like horses, but do look like flies, and yellow-orange deer flies, which do not look like deer or flies. And why is it not deers? Would keep dive-bombing and uh, you until you killed them. Many times, these fierce insects would take a smacking, uh, lie on the water without moving for a while, and then buzz right back at you. There were plenty of snakes, but they were always more afraid of Kyle and James than the other way around. Okay, almost always. There was once a water moccasin that chased them away from Dead Crow Lake, but after they ran halfway home, the boys stopped to rest and then could not be sure if it had been a snake or just a black stick floating in the water. 
The waters were home to green turtles with yellow stripes, and both the turtles and the stripes came in all sizes. They liked to lie on the banks and soak up sunshine. They were very timid, very fast, and almost impossible to catch unless they were wandering from one body of water to another. There were brown mud turtles with soft shells and necks as long as their bodies. They looked nasty. They felt nasty. Whenever the boys were in the water and something would bite at their toes, they always yelled, Soft shell attack! Soft shell attack! But they never actually saw one of those grotesque brown turtles bite them. The gopher turtles looked like strong gray German tanks. They lived in the sandy regions and dug wide tunnels deep into the ground with their strong front legs. They were easy to catch, as were the pretty round box turtles with their colorful shell designs. The trouble with catching a turtle is that it really did not do anything. A couple of times the boys painted names or number, numbers on captured turtles, but they never saw one of these marked creatures a second time. Some of the fish in the bigger ponds and canals would snap at the boys when they swam. The boys called them piranhas and remembered how that in moments they had completely consumed some kind of animal in a Tarzan movie, but the fish in the waters of the tire tracks never did more than nibble. For a while there was an alligator that lived in a shell pit near the whole four canal, so that place was off limits for swimming, not for throwing rocks at the gator. There was also some kind of sea monster that was said to live way out in the swamps, but that was a tale James and Kyle never fell for. They were almost certain it was a grown-up's way of trying to keep them from going too far into the winding maze of canals, or winding maze of canals, that stretched westward from the tire tracks. Anyway, it was wintertime, or as wintertime as it ever got where the boys grew up, and it seemed the season was right for a campout. Let's head east toward the Forbidden Lands and search for a campsite, said Kyle one afternoon. Great idea. We've never spent the night out there, James replied. Off they marched along the double road road. Um, tra trail with a distant and very weak sun high about above them. The air was cool and the grasses were dry. They swiftly passed all the side trails until they reached their destination. The east road ended suddenly at a sharp curve on the railroad tracks. This curve was raised up very high, ten or twelve feet above the ground on which they stood. The boys ran up the slope and took a good long look around. It was a great view. Stretching out before them were the prairie lands through which they had come. To the right they could see all the forbidden lands, woods so thick and filled with thorn bushes that the boys never had explored any of it and never would explore all of it. Beyond this dark and scary wood, the boys could see the rooftops of the Mafia headquarters. Neither of the boys was exactly sure what the Mafia was, nor could they recall how they knew the term, but what they knew instinctively 
usually turned out to be correct, and they knew the Mafia was dangerous, and that the people operating the big machines over there were dangerous, so that had to be the Mafia headquarters. One day, we have to go there and spy on them, James said, feeling brave because it was so far away. I know they are up to no good, Kyle said with authority, putting a tone in his voice as said, and we'll get to the bottom of it, even though he did not say, and we'll get to the bottom of it. Off to their left was a little clearing that gave way to a bushy forest that ran into the Berlin Wall Canal and the whole four canal. Behind them, across the railroad tracks, was a jumble of spiked palm meadows, fallen trees, and old stumps. Well, what do you think? James asked. I would like to camp near the tracks, Kyle answered, but we're going to have to have a campfire this time of year. That means we can't camp under the trees, James noted. Or in them, said Kyle, in one of those moments where he was very funny without trying to be. They wandered about for a while and decided upon a spot about 30 feet from the railroad curve. It was a smooth place where the grass was flattened down on the side of the east road closest to the forbidden lands. Good spot, soft ground, tracks nearby. I like it, Kyle said to himself as he examined the location. Now to gather some wood, said James, in what sounded like an order. Soon they were gathering little branches from under the pines, hoping to find a fallen tree so they could take the hard heart full of the dry sap that burned so long and so hot, but they never found one. As the day grew late and their pile of wood had not grown much, Kyle wandered down the rocky bend or bed upon which the railroad was built. His heart leaped for joy. Hey James, look at this. It's a gold mine. What? What did you find? He said as he came running. Look over here. Cross ties. Whoa, that's great. The great wooden beams upon which the two metal rails rested in order to make a train track were long and square and extremely heavy. It looks like the railroad men have torn out the old cross ties and put in new ones, Kyle said merrily, and they were nice enough to leave the old ones right here for us to burn at a campout, James said with joy. Let's get some and drag them over to the campsite, Kyle shouted. That will be perfect, said James happily. We'll each grab an end, Kyle stated as they were already bending over to do just that. Before he could say, and we'll carry them over to our site, the boys tried to lift one end. With all their might, they could not budge the big piece of wood. It was just too heavy. So much for our gold mine said James, his happiness gone as quickly as it come. But when the boys set their hearts and minds on something, they did not give up. They tried both getting on one end to lift just half the cross tie and flipping it over. They got it off the ground this way, but could not stand it up. In fact, the first three times they tried, it almost fell on top of them. Uh, these close encounters with being crushed made them a bit more cautious, but not much. 
Then they tried picking it up just a little bit, both on one end and swinging it around. They moved it a few inches in that fashion, but could see it would take a long time, too long a time, to move them all the way to the campsite like that. What if we roll them? Kyle suggested. Could work, James thought out loud. So they got down on their knees, pushed hard, and over it went. Thud! Eight inches forward. Again, thud! Eight inches forward. They, this worked well as they made their way down the rocky railroad bed. It hurt like crazy to kneel in the rocks which lined the tracks, but they were so excited to have such huge pieces of wood to burn in their campfire that it was worth the pain. More trouble came when they had to move the cross ties up and over the ten feet of bank. It m took every bit of might and pushing and huffing to turn that cross tie over one time. If they turned t it too fast, it would shake the rocks and everything would slide back down. Rocks sliding, wood sliding, boys sliding. It did not take much of this before the boys were all scraped up and exhausted. They had been working so hard they had not noticed that the sun was now uh, sitting just above the far end of the east road and the air was getting very chilly. We've got to head for home, James said sadly. Looks like it'll take a while to move these babies, said Kyle. In fact, it took two more trips to the big curve to get four of those heavy square logs rolled to their campsite. They stacked the beams. They put their other wood around them. They planned where their sleeping bags would be placed. And best of all, they sat under the timid winter sun and talked about how much fun they were going to have at their campout. That week at school, the two could talk of nothing else but the upcoming campout. They invited their pal Robert to come with them, and he was thrilled to go. On Thursday afternoon, they met at Kyle's house and got their gear together. James called the roll. Kyle and Robert reported the facts. Sleeping bags? Three. Food. Hot dogs, marshmallows, two bags of cookies, two bags of chips, four apples, drinks, six-pack of pop, said Robert. Pop, said Kyle and James curiously. What's pop? These, he said, holding up cans of soft drinks. Oh, you mean Cokes, said Kyle. No, these aren't Cokes, Robert protested. Sure they are, James said informatively. They are all Cokes. You just have to say what kind. The packing stopped for a while as they called for Kyle's mother, and she explained that pop and soda were names used for soft drinks, and that calling them Cokes had something to do with the power of advertising. But they did not hear the part where she explained advertising, because Kyle kept raising his hand, wanting to say something. When she finished explaining advertising to the boys, who heard none of it because they wanted to know what Kyle had to say, she said, Kyle, what do you have to say? Why do you call them soft drinks? What are hard drinks? Kyle asked. It seemed like a perfectly reasonable question, but his mother looked bothered and said, Oh no, not today, and turned to leave the room. Grown-ups are so strange. 
James said softly, hoping Kyle's mother would not hear him. Maybe she doesn't know, said Robert in a whisper. Yes, she does, Kyle shot back, defending his mother's certain knowledge of all things. She just doesn't want to get our brains tied by telling us too many things at once. Flashlight? Check. Matches? Got them. Machete? Right here. And the radio? With batteries. Well, it looks like we have everything ready, James certified. Hurry up, Friday, Kyle said with a grin. They decided to play a few games and talk, but this required snacks and drinks, but none of the pop soda Cokes were cold. I'll put them in the freezer, said Kyle. That will get them ready to drink in no time. Soon the boys were in the yard throwing balls and frisbees, then trying to jump over the hedge with little success, their failures being blamed on the shoes and jackets made necessary by the cold, then throwing balls on the roof and fighting each other to catch them when they bounced off. All the while they talked about the coming campout. Gentlemen, I am thirsty, Robert said at last. Good thing we have these those delicious beverages waiting in the icebox, said James, sounding as though something in that talk about advertising had taken hold. Into the house they went. Kyle reached into the freezer only to find the cans of what they had hoped to drink were frozen solid. Kyle set each of the three cans on the table one by one with a bang, then smiling said, Boys, these are hard drinks. Everybody laughed like crazy. As soon as school was out the next day, the boys raced on their bikes to Kyle's house, gathered up their supplies, and headed for the tire tracks. They all talked at once, looking forward to the thrill of a campout. What kind of animals would they see? What kind of sounds would they hear? Would there be hoodlums or wolves? What if someone from the Mafia headquarters saw their fire? Was there a panther in the Forbidden Lands? There were so many unknown terrors in the night, and that made it such a thrill to challenge them. They found their campsite as they had left it, made a last swing through the nearby woods to pick up small branches that would burn, and then waited for the night to fall. Just before the early sunset, they felt the ground begin to shake. Then they heard a rumble in the distance. Train! yelled James. A train is coming! Let's get out of here, cried Robert. His two companions looked at him with wonder. Get out of get out of here, said Kyle in a tone meant to correct his younger friend. This is why we chose this spot. James had already run up the steep bank to the railroad tracks. He carefully laid the pennies which they had brought for the train to crush on one of the rails. He hurried over to the opposite rail and placed the empty can that had once held non-frozen soda pop coke. Then he caught a glimpse of the big locomotive starting to round the bend and scrambled down the bank to stand with the other two boys. It was like being in an earthquake. The ground was bouncing beneath them. The roaring noise of the train grew louder and louder. They began to pull wildly on imaginary cords above their heads pleading with the engineer to sound the horn. He saw them. He waved. Woo! Woo! He 
gave two blasts of the whistle, the second lo longer than the first, just before the engine roared past and a sound like a hurricane blasted the boys' eardrums as the big metal cars whizzed past. They stood and watched with wonder. They were so close that each car snapped by in a blink of an eye. They gloried in the sound, the fury, the power, the click-clack, click-clack of the big steel wheels on the mighty rails. What a feeling! Then everything happened in reverse. The sound faded away. The ground stopped shaking. They ran up onto the tracks and watched as the caboose grew smaller and smaller and then vanished. They did not take time to ponder how uh, grew and smaller could fit together, for they were touching the rails to see how hot they had become, searching for the pennies they had been told would be big and flat, and for the can to see how completely smashed it must be. They were a little disappointed to find the can had fallen off the rail in time to escape before or being flattened, and a little more unhappy that the pennies were never seen again. But these setbacks were nothing compared to the rush that flooded through them when the train roared past. They talked about it with such zest that it was only when the last bit of daylight began to bed down for the night that they realized it would soon be dark. It was cool, but not cold, chilly, but not uncomfortable, breezy, but not windy, the perfect night for a campout. As the sun slipped quietly into the trees, where it would hide until morning, the boys made the first of two discoveries that would prove most unfortunately or unfortunate before the sun got back on the job. They lit their kindling wood without any problem. Soon the little twigs and clusters of pine straw were burning hot and fast. The small branches they threw atop this beginning quickly caught and burned. They had learned much about building campfires on the many nights they had spent in the woods since the, that first disaster years earlier. Excitedly, the three lads watched those big cross ties as the flames circled around them. It was a beautiful sight. But soon, the sight grew puzzling. The kindling wood was all but gone. The branches were burning down through the ash and coals that would provide the base that should have kept the three boys warm in the last hours of the night, but those big beams seemed to be repelling the flames. Look at this, said Kyle. It's like the fire can't touch those ties. I don't get it, James said with a discouraged concern in his voice. They are wood. The fire is hot. Maybe we should move them some, Robert suggested for no reason, but it seemed reasonable. They rose to give it a try. Ouch! Man, that's hot. Turn your face away. The boys shouted these and other orders and exclamations to each other as they tried to move the beams. If they were almost too heavy to move down the trail to the campsite, it was now all but impossible to move as they sat in the middle of a roaring fire. Yet the heat that scalded the boys' arms and smote their faces seemed to have no effect on the huge railroad ties. Exhausted and very hot, the three friends fell to the ground and 
wondered what they were up against. It's got to be some sort of curse. We are too near the Forbidden Lands, James reasoned. I don't want to think about it, Kyle mumbled. There's got to be some way to get them burning. After a time of silence, Robert said, Remember in Sunday school that story about Moses in the bush? You mean the one that was on fire but did not burn? Kyle quizzed. Yep, Robert said. Maybe these things are made out of that kind of wood, James said, seeing Kyle's point. But how could that kind of wood be here? They thought on that for a while, and then Kyle did what Kyle so often did. He said something simple that made perfect sense. He stood to his feet, held up his hand, and said, Gentlemen, this much I know, that fire will soon be dead. I make a motion that we cook our hot dogs now, or we will have only cold dogs, and I like hot dogs better than cold dogs, so let's get them hot while we still can. So out came the dogs, stuck on the coat hangers, cooked to imperfection, eaten with chips, washed down with air temperature pop, or soda, or coke, or soft drink. It was a good meal, but not nearly as good as it would have been if they could just see those big pieces of wood start to burn. Then came something the boys had done before, but never liked to do. They would have to wander far from their campsite, searching in the dark for wood to burn. It was a great way to get scratches and bruises, but a lousy way to get wood. The boys searched the woods in the winter night darkness without finding anything. They kept looking back at the dwindling fire, hoping it would spring to life and making sure they did not wander too far and get lost in the darkness. Kyle stumbled upon a palm tree and brought back an arm load of only dry fronds which he found beneath it. These burned hot and bright, lighting up the area around them, but they died out quickly. Robert came in dragging a large branch he found, well, actually it found him, and reached up to grab his leg and hurl him to the ground. James ran to help him, and they tossed it on the cross ties, but it was damp and rotten from having been on the ground for a very long time, and when it hit the fire it just crumbled into bits. With all their attempts to ignite the railroad timbers, frustrated, the boys sat down to talk, listen to the radio, and count the stars in the crystal clear sky. As hours fell away and the fire slowly died out, they noticed that the cold had sent its evil spirit to begin tormenting them. It first began to squeeze its invisible hands around their knees, causing them to ache. It then blew upon their fingers and toes and ears, making them to hurt. They tried to keep talking, but their cheeks and lips were getting hard and started starting to crack. My fingers are turning into icicles, Kyle said with more than a little alarm. I can't bend them. The same thing was happening to my face, James said, groaning. When I try to move my jaws, it's like they're, they are stuck and won't open. Robert tried to climb to his feet, but toppled over, crying out, My knees! My ankles! They do not want to bend! Do you guys believe in Jack Frost? 
he asked, and the moment he did so, he wished he had not. No way, James and Kyle sneered in unison. That's kid stuff, said Kyle, to remind Robert that he and James were a full year older. I am afraid this is something much more real, James said, slowly because he was serious and slowly because his mouth felt like it was breaking when he tried to form the words. Jack Frost would paint the grass and skip away. This is a cold creeping out of the forbidden lands, and it seems intent on turning us into statues. Ice men, like the Coke can in the freezer, Kyle added, speaking more to himself than to the other boys. Popsicles, Eskimo pies, ice trays, he mumbled on, listing anything he could remember, seeing in a frozen condition. Ground beef, fish. Stop it, Robert pleaded. Why don't we just go home? He never should have said that, although it did cause the next hour to fly by as James and Kyle took turns lecturing him on uh, quitters, babies, dying heroically, not giving in to pain, and about the place he was earning in history. They gave detailed accounts of great explorers and what they had suffered, telling far more than they actually knew about such men. When things at last grew quiet again, they all realized how painfully cold they were. They tried counting the stars. This did not work because their eyeballs froze if they kept them um, open too long, and when they reopened them, they were not sure what part of the sky they had counted. They made jokes about the ancient people who pretended they saw pictures of things in the heavens, for all that was passing by above them was a jumble of white dots. Kyle turned on the radio. They had a modern state-of-the-art battery-powered transistor that almost picked up a station clearly. If you could get the round dial to stop in just the right place and then stay there when you set down the device, they listened to a few songs which sounded so far away. Then a man who seemed very excited said, We'll have a special weather bulletin right after these messages. A flurry of conversation drowned out the commercials and would have done the same to the weather report, but Kyle said, Shh! It's coming on! Then came the bland voice of an unconcerned announcer. This is a special warning from the National Weather Service. We are calling for a deep freeze tonight. Low-lying areas will see record cold. Be sure your plants are covered, your pets are inside, and your pipes are wrapped for protection. Whatever hope they had went, they had went away when Kyle clicked off the radio right after hearing that the time was 1.05. James tried to say a few things about what they were about to accomplish, but this time even he had his doubts. They got as close as they dared to the faintly glowing embers of a fire Fire that never quit, uh, quite did its job. They told and retold tales of their campouts when fires had burned warm and bright, but that only made things worse. They reminded one another of how thick clouds of mosquitoes would torment them on summer campouts and how these cold nights helped to kill so many of the 
treacherous noceums, the tiny sand gnats that came out in the evenings and put little bites upon you that drove you mad with itching. They made the difficulties of hotter days sound as awful as they could, but it was no use. They were miserably cold. The boys climbed as deep inside their sleeping bags as they could and began to pass in and out of a fitful sleep. How long a time had passed, no, none could say, but James shook, Kyle forcibly, for, forcefully, Are you alive? I, I think so, Kyle said, trying to sit up without much success. It's Robert. I think he's gone. He left? Kyle asked, slithering out of his cocoon. Not that kind of gone. Come look, James said, grabbing Kyle by the arm and pulling him around the fire pit, which was now void of any fire. Look, he pointed. Robert was lying on his back with just his face exposed. The dim glow in the pale moonlight twisted and distorted the features of Kyle's face so that they were all out of proportion. The boys did not see the faintest of clouds drifting aimlessly through the nighttime sky, but the shadows they cast made it look as though parts of Kyle's face had been eaten away. He had one cheek, but only a black space where the other had been. Half of his forehead and part of his lower jaw were gone. He was motionless. He must have died from the cold, James said somberly. But if that was what got him, how do you explain his face? Something in these woods has been eating him, Kyle replied. As soon as he said that, he started to look around, but there was nothing to see. All around them was varying shades of blackness. Their fire had burned away. Their friend had lost his life. The same cold that took him was smiting their limbs and faces as they stood back to back over their motionless pal and wondered what to do. As if to add fear to fear, the ground began to shake. They heard the rails begin to tremble, rumble. In the far great distance, they caught the first sounds of a train. Do trains run in the middle of the night? asked Kyle. I have never heard of one doing so in the winter, not at 4 a.m., James answered. He did not know it was 4 a.m., but it seemed like it must be. The two friends strained to climb up the bank. The rocks blasted their frozen fingers with sharp pain. Their feet felt as if they would break as they slid deep into the stones of attraction. The deep breaths they took for a bit of energy felt as if they were freezing the inside of their chests. As they reached the top of the embankment to stand on the tracks, they also left the shelter of the woods and a vicious wind shot out of the north and blasted them, nearly toppling them to the ground. They leaned forward to braced themselves against it, lifted an arm to shield their eyes from its bitter fury, and looked to see a single light coming toward them. This is it, said Kyle. That is the midnight train of death coming to take us to eternity. He said this without fear or alarm. It was more like resignation, as if he was trying, or as he was saying to the cold and the night and to whatever had claimed Robert, I'll, I give up. You win. You may be right, my good friend, said James, his lips cracking, his 
teeth chattering madly, but I am not ready to go for that ride. The ground was rumbling now, and the rails had begun to bounce in expectation of their meeting with the big churning wheels. I can't move, said Kyle slug sluggishly. I don't want to move. Come on, old pal, James said, putting his arm around the shoulder of his dearest friend. We have many more places to explore. With a nudge, he turned Kyle back toward the campsite. They staggered and slid down the hill. Just as they reached the bottom, the train roared past. Bang, 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 clang, 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 clang. The ground shook mightily. The icy wind, diving out of the way of the train, smashed of the train smashed into their shivering backs. They leaned on each other, dragging themselves on aching feet over the, to the campsite for one last terrifying look at the eerily disfigured face of Kyle. They collapsed down onto the ground next to him and fell asleep. Fell fast asleep. Hey guys, can we go home now? James and Kyle bolted out of a deep sleep to see Robert sitting beside them with his sleeping bag wrapped around his shoulders and thrown over his head. They screamed in fright, their first thought being that they were now in eternity. But as they backed away from the recently deceased Kyle and began to wake up, they recognized their campsite. You're not dead? Kyle asked. I don't think so, Robert answered though I will probably die from pneumonia or something after last night. Wow, it's so cold, James said, trying to bend his stiff legs enough to stand. We can't be in eternity, not freezing like this. Your face, it's normal again, said Kyle with wonder. What do you mean? Robert asked. We will tell you all about it on the way home, said James, and so they did. For many years, the boys would make trips down the East Road and sit by the monument of cross ties stacked near the big curve in the railroad tracks near the Mafia headquarters and remember the dreadfully cold winter night when they almost rode the midnight train to eternity. Next time, Chapter 15, Return to the Grave. And this book and many others can be found on uh, the church website at www jameswnox.org and you can go to the bookstore part of the uh, Bible Baptist Church website so join me again next time for chapter 15 return to the grave